ask you first about your own motivations. What were your motivations to go into tropical medicine or into international health? Um, I enjoyed pretty much every aspect of medicine. Um, one tends to be very influenced by the people who you work for, who you are inspired by. And the person who um, most inspired me as a junior doctor was a, a guy called Harold Lambert, who um, was one of the sort of key figures in infectious diseases in this country. And despite having come through Oxford and uh, the Weatherall Empire, I hadn't particularly seen myself as somebody who would do research. Harold Lambert spent quite a lot of time kind of encouraging me and he said um, he was sure I wanted to do the best for patients and I said yes of course you know but if, if you don't do research how can you find out what the best is you know we don't know the answer for why some people get meningitis and some people don't and some people do very badly with particular diseases and I guess I started sort of thinking about that and particularly in the context of infectious diseases after working for him um, and I came back to see David Wetherall, who had been my um, another mentor, um, as, a, as, a, as he was to quite a lot of people, um, as, as a very junior, as a medical student and um, houseman. Um, he was at that stage still waiting to see whether his two boys, um, Nick White and um, Jeff Passfall, were both senior registrars in Oxford interested in tropical medicine and infectious diseases. And he wasn't sure whether you know they were going to get placed and until he he saw them move on he really didn't want to encourage anybody else to go for it because he wasn't really sure whether they would <laughs> well anyway I, I, I persisted and came back here and, and, and did the um, registrar job in infectious diseases and then had the opportunity to do research on HIV and I guess HIV had cropped up as a again working in St George's in the early 80s with the first people with HIV um, coming in through the wards. And at that time, it was a disease where people lost everything. They had previously been emotionally quite involved and thought I might like a career in haematology, which is obviously what a lot of people do having worked um, um, for David Wetherill. But there, when you know a young person had leukaemia, it was awful. But the whole family supported them, whereas somebody with HIV, that everybody sort of disappeared. <laughs> their, their support systems, their, often their jobs, their homes um, and, and their close family were at that stage going in the opposite direction. And so I guess those two things came together for me at that stage. I had the opportunity to do a PhD with Andrew McMichael, which again was advice from David Wetherall. And then from that, uh, I've had a series of uh, MRC fellowships um, to do uh, research, but with some clinical work in infectious diseases and focusing on HIV in the tropics. I guess I was doing that for about 12, 15 years when the opportunity came up to be involved with it tropical centre. David Worrell was uh, standing down as head of the tropical centre and it, it seemed like a really exciting fit and, um, and, and I'd, got, I'd spent a lot of time in different parts of Africa working on HIV and this was a chance to get to know a lot more about what they were doing in the tropics, the, the, the welcome units in Kalifi and um, Thailand and Vietnam. And uh, after I'd been doing that about three or four years, the opportunity came up to go to the Gambia. And we went uh, to the Gambia in 2004. Um, so unlike Nick and Kevin, we didn't stay there as long as, as, as might have been ideal, but that really was because of the political changes in the country and the uh, changes in the MRC had envisaged for the unit. Um, 
when we look at where some of these units have gone, it hasn't followed traditionally the British flag. Although you can say in East Africa, not so much in Thailand and Gambia and things like that. When you went to these countries, did you feel you were a colonial representative or did you just feel that you were doing a, a medical job of work? Um, I definitely didn't feel a colonial representative. I think I'm sort of probably from a generation where, where, that, where that's <laughs> something you're trying very hard to disassociate yourself from. Um, I mean, it's clear that that tradition had built up these kind of places. And so, I mean, the Gambia unit was established in um, just after the Second World War at a time that the Gambia was still a British colony. And uh, from what I understand, the, the thinking was that they would... Um, uh, the, the British government was investing in peanut farming and um, the, the health of the peanut farmers was the major concern and they, the unit was initially looking at the nutrition of peanut farmers and then, then realised that infectious diseases was actually a major cause of the problems. So th there's definitely that legacy in these places um, but I think it, one tries to be very careful not to convey that kind of message anymore. Can I ask you something about the sociology of some of the patients you've been dealing with in your uh, area that you're an expert in, which is HIV-AIDS? What was the difference between the patients you were dealing with in England in the 1980s and then those you were dealing with in Africa? Well, in some ways, it's in, particularly in, in West Africa, the situation was quite similar because there seems to be a sort of uh, a situation where um, the stigma of HIV is, is very intense when it's a disease that's either sort of new in the population or at a lowish, no enough level to, to really scare people. Once it gets to a stage at which um, most people know someone with HIV, perhaps 20-30% you know, of the population, uh, then that the stigma is much less, but obviously then the disease has got to a, a, a very sort of serious state. So I, I th did think there were quite a lot of similarities with what I saw in um, the very early 80s when people were, when the, the porters dressed up in sort of space seats to move a patient um, around the hospital, um, and, uh, and and people were very kind of frightened of uh, any, any kind of contact with somebody with HIV, to what was happening in West Africa. And when I, about the time that I arrived in the Gambia, the um, first patients were being uh, offered antiretroviral therapy through um, funding from the Global Fund, and um, the uh, the national uh, committee that decided on eligibility for. Um, uh, there was a national committee that decided on eligibility for antiretroviral treatment, and part of their conditions that they adopted or more or less wholesale some guidelines that had come from Uganda, which is a very different setting where people had dealt with the stigma and the, the, the epidemic had been at a very high level. Um, and, and they, but they adopted these wholesale in the Gambia and part of the conditions were that you had to have disclosed that your HIV status to another person um, in your family or in your compound. Before, uh, um, and many people would actually rather die than make that disclosure. So we lost people who weren't able to take we started an antiretroviral therapy just because the stigma was too great for them to confide in anyone about their status. Scientifically, do we know why some people are immune to the disease and others are not? <laughs> um, no, we have um, ideas. 
um, it, it's, it's, it's a complex relationship between the immune system um, and some people have certain advantages, uh, particular genes um, that give their immune system an advantage against HIV uh, and so it's a battle between the immune system and the virus and again some viruses appear to be more aggressive than others um, but exactly what makes one person live for 20 years without any problems and another person get really sick within a very short space of time it is still unexplained, uh, frustratingly. <laughs> so, uh, David Worrell was telling me that when he was working in Kenya, he was working with cohorts of prostitutes. He was, yes. There was I a kind of so. phylogenetic scale that Tanzanian women were at the bottom. Mm -hmm. uh, but he said one of the advantages was that as well as being able to follow these people, you could offer some care. Did yes. you work with prostitutes yourself? Yes, I, I had um, uh, I worked uh, with a group, um, a, a collaboration based in Nairobi, um, with a, with a, uh, in fact with some of the same women that David Worrell was involved with. Um, this was a, a collaboration set up some time ago between Canadians and Kenyans, um, uh, and originally to study a, a very unpleasant genital ulcer disease called chancroid, um, because the Canadians were microbiologists, and this is one of the um, this is a, a bacterial disease that they were interested. In. And around 1986, they somebody suggested to them, um, I think an epidemiologist from uh, the States, uh, suggested they might look for HIV, this new disease that was being noticed in, uh, in, in linked to Africa. And so they did a survey of their, of their sex workers and found that 60% of the women already had HIV in this really quite early stage of the epidemic. And so the, the sort of the, the um, emphasis switched to HIV for obvious reasons. And I was quite involved for, for, for several years in working with this group in looking at the small number of women who, despite exposure after exposure, didn't become infected. Um, so David was involved in looking, providing clinical care and trying to understand the disease and, and what people who were infected and we were particularly interested in the ones who, despite everything, had not become infected. Yeah. It's hard, I think, in some areas of medicine to be optimistic. There are many mm. false dawns. In your own speciality, do you th how do you think things are looking? <laughs> um, well, there, there's, um, there, there's a vaccine trial last year in Thailand which, for the first time, suggested that there may be some um, Efficacy from a from a, a candidate vaccine against HIV, and I say may because it um, it was a very large trial of people who weren't at particularly high risk of infection. So the numbers of people who were infected um, were was relatively it was relatively small numbers. So the the comparison is between two small numbers, and it just reaches statistical significance depending on the kind of analysis you do. But nothing has approached statistical significance before, um, even you know, when people felt that they were testing a particularly good candidate vaccine. So this is, I think, has 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 changed the field. I think I suspect HIV is quite an emotional field, and people tend to go. There's <laughs> uh, been a really sort of roller coaster ride of emotions, but I think at the moment the field is fe the, the the optimism from the Thai trial is there, and the feeling that if you know we could understand what happened in that study, then we could we could improve on it and actually achieve better protection with the vaccine. At the same time, there's been a lot more encouragement from studies of people who've survived a long time with HIV infection and also from uh, animal models where candidate vaccines, um, having which had kind of 
plateaued and protecting the occasional monkey, now um, uh, really getting very significant protection with different kinds of vaccines. So there's an optimism, but then we've been optimistic before and it hasn't, uh, it hasn't uh, worked out. Unlike malaria, do you feel you've been lucky to be just starting your professional career at the beginning, the discovery of a new disease affecting humanity? Yes, <laughs> I think, I think that's, that's a very uh, good way of putting it because, uh, it, it, I mean, it, it was exciting. I mean, I think uh, you probably do know this actually, but David Wetherill was a, made the first diagnosis of HIV in the hospital. Um, uh, I, it, 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 this is a legend that's handed down to us, but there was a, a, a nurse, I think from Zambia, who came in with some um, unusual symptoms and people weren't quite sure what was going on and, uh, and David Wetherill sort of mentioned an award round United. I suppose it couldn't possibly be this new disease HIV that everybody's talking about and everyone looked at each other and no one had thought of that and, and it turned out this nurse did have HIV and she was the first case diagnosed here. Um, and uh, so, uh, so I was a student then um, and then looking after some of the first patients in London as a junior doctor so I feel I do feel I've seen it through from being a clinician at a time when it was sensational and, and very scary to a stage where here it's a matter of routine. People come to the clinic looking incredibly well and um, and are managing um, extraordinarily well on their antiretrovirals to seeing it in Africa where it's still a disease that's scary and still kills a very large number of people and where the spread is largely uncontrolled. Largely uncontrolled? Yes. Yeah. The other thing I think, if you're working in the tropics, with often with tropical diseases, um, and as they've moved, is do you have a sense of adventure, going to different cultures, um, savouring different working conditions? Is that something that's also very attractive for somebody who might be thinking of spending their life in tropical medicine? Yes. <laughs> so I, mean, I, I, I have. Um, I enjoy the travel aspect enormously. I think it's an extraordinary privilege to work alongside people from different backgrounds and different cultures. Um, I suspect that part of the reason that pe people enjoy it so much is that although um, the circle of people in tropical medicine might be relatively small, it's kind of enriched for people who are interested to spend time with. And um, so the... Um, uh, and, and then there's a very exciting feeling of working together with people from a very different culture and a very difficult back, different background, but where, you, where between you, you can actually um, uh, come up with something very constructive and, and, and productive. So those are all extraordinary privileges uh, that, yes, I enjoy enormously. And one of the differences, I suppose, today between when David uh, Wetherill came here was that many more students are taking electives in yes. the Oxford units throughout the world. Yes, and I, I think there's, there is still a real passion. I, I see a lot of students, uh, undergraduates, medical students, and actually also sort of junior doctors where, and, and I don't think the enthusiasm for working overseas and trying to do something about these very major health problems has diminished. Um, I mean, some of the problems have changed in different parts of the world and 
although the infectious diseases still account for a huge burden of disease, there's obviously more. Many of these countries are also, with in, in, increasing uh, economic uh, growth, going from that into a, a problem of, of chronic disease um, as well, as well as the infectious disease burden. Um, so we want to think about both of those aspects, but it's still something that I think people have a, a passion and enthusiasm for. We all have to work within the new realities of economics, as if we didn't know about them before. But could you say the impact of uh, tropical medicine, has it benefited British people here at home? Well, I think undoubtedly. Um, uh, the, uh, not, not least because people travel and uh, so a lot of my clinical practice here um, in the infectious disease unit is seeing returning travellers who may be academics or they may work for Oxfam or they may be overseas students who come here and then think they're immune to the tropical diseases they used to be susceptible to in their, uh, in, in their childhood. Um, uh, or, or just you know people travelling for for, for, the, for the fun of it, and so understanding more about how to treat malaria or TB or typhoid or whatever is 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 a huge benefit because we're all um, we're all much more likely to be exposed, and of course now also the diseases travel to us. So um, Jeremy's work on avian flu in Vietnam could be impacting on <laughs> what a flu outbreak in Britain in five or ten years time so I think I, I think it's 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 very important um, to the health of people in this country as well over 50% of medical students are women not men but do you find that at the level that you're at there seems to have been some sort of a glass ceiling imposed I'm sorry to say that that is still the case there's still remarkably few women in senior positions in um, academic medicine in Oxford or in Oxford in general and I think I don't think that situation has improved much since I was a student um, uh, and I, I think West we still remain poorly represented uh, in tropical medicine particularly. Yeah. Do you think you're, yourself you have a, a daughter who's eight is this an inevitable thing of creating a family just at a time when careers go vertical that you need to be out of the country in order to, to make your name in tropical medicine? Well, I, I thought, um, and especially after talking to some of the, uh, the, the people working in the tropical units, that, um, that family life, if anything, is enhanced by spending time overseas. It, it certainly uh, gave us uh, a very good experience to share with one another and with the, the people and, and with the other families that we were working with. Um, so I, I don't think that should be in itself a barrier, um, but I, I guess what we were very conscious of in the Gambia was that it, it was often very difficult to recruit two people or, or a couple um, to uh, as, where both had satisfying or interesting jobs um, in, 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 a, in a place as small as the Gambia. And I think that's going to be an increasing challenge because if you, if you want to move a family um, and you are, you're only providing a career opportunity for one person in the, in the couple, that probably is uh, eventually going to, it, it's not a very stable situation. Um. As the sociological uh, differences are played out over time, do you think we will inevitably see more women going into senior positions in management and indeed leading units which are at the moment universally led by men. You would hope so, but then I would have thought that is when I was training myself and I haven't seen that um, to, the same, to the extent I would have hoped.
And uh, when I went to the MRC, um, part of the negotiations was that my husband would work there at the same time um, in the Gambia, and he gave up. Um, uh, he was a he's a general practitioner, and he gave up his his partnership in Oxford to move out there. But it was something he was very enthusiastic to do as well, um, and we we very much enjoyed working together. But I suspect that's been a barrier to recruiting women is that they people haven't thought about both. Uh, both people in a partnership, but that probably ought to apply equally well to the to the uh, male recruits. Um. GPs in Oxford earn on average £105,000 a year and they're unhappy. Would you say people in tropical medicine tend to be happy lot there? Yes, yeah, I mean it, it, it is an extraordinary... <laughs> I mean the, most of these people are enjoying what they're doing enormously. That's that's I think that's a it's it's a passion it's um, it, <laughs> it's a commitment but but they're doing it because they love it 